Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing in our series on the book of Revelation. And maybe this is your first Sunday here. And if it's your first Sunday, you might be thinking, oh no, what did I get into? Why, why, why did I come when this church is going to be talking about Revelation? Isn't that the weird book? And yeah, there's some weird things about Revelation that are odd to us, but Revelation ultimately is a book all about Jesus. You see, John, when he first wrote, wrote Revelation, he said that the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you keep that in mind, you're good. And you think, okay, wait a minute, this isn't as intimidating as I, as I once thought, because this is all about who Jesus is, revealing his glory, revealing his majesty, pulling back the, the curtain, if you will. The word revelation actually means disclosure. It's meant to disclose who Jesus is, and Jesus says that it's meant to be heard and then kept, meaning responded to. This is meant to be a practical book. So for your first time here, take that kind of as a foundation and hear these words. These are words to the church that are meant to be kept. So let's turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 12 to 17, and we're going to stand for the reading of God's word so we can acknowledge this is his holy inspired word. Let's stand together and read his word. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing Jesus to us. Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself to us your angels, to John, for us, for our sake, and for our good. Jesus, I pray that you would, you would bring these words home to us personally. These will not just be words for that church and that day struggling with those issues, but Lord, I pray that you would help us apply these words to our church today and to our own lives. Would you enable us by your Spirit to hear from you, to not just hear your word and walk away thinking we've changed, but to hear your word and respond God, we know that takes a work of your spirit, so we pray for the gift of your spirit to be at work in all of us, to enliven us, to help us be alert and attentive, Lord, and to fill me as I preach. Jesus, thank you that you desire to work in and amongst your church, and so we are expectant and we are eager, Lord, and we say, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You ever been foggy-headed? Anybody here ever foggy-headed? You ever kind of feel a little out of it? How about, how about in the middle of the night, you're, you're sleeping, and you hear a bump in the night, and you're not sure, was that real? Did I hear something? Did I imagine that thing? Anybody ever had those times? And you're not really sure, and you're kind of out of it? You know, I, I wasn't sure, but 
A, little, a few months ago, I was sound asleep, and all of a sudden, I heard this loud noise in my sleep. It woke me up, kind of. You ever, you ever have that kind of halfway feeling? You wake up, and you're not sure, what did I hear? Was it real? Was it not? And I was still a little foggy, still a little slow, mentally, kind of just like, oh, what was that? But then the noise was so loud that I thought it's, it's either one of two things. And I, it's either somebody hammering with a sledgehammer on the wall of my house, because it was bam, 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 bam. Or somebody shooting at my house. It turned out to be the latter, but not actually physically at my house, but somebody was shooting right outside of our house um, in close proximity to it. So um, there's nothing like that to wake you up quickly, right? There's nothing like that sound that you realize all of a sudden, wait a minute, either somebody's hitting my house with a sledgehammer, unlikely, or somebody's shooting at my house. There's nothing like that threat, that weapon threat to kind of wake you up and, and clear the fog out. Um, I immediately was not foggy anymore, and I responded um, with, with my own protection. So, and I got up, and I went outside, and it turns out my neighbor had heard it as well, and they had called the county sheriff. And, and so we had both, at like 3 or 4 in the morning, we were wide awake. We were alert. It cleared the fog of sleep away. There's, there's nothing like something like that to arrest you, to, to wake you up, to get your, your mind clear. My blood was pumping. I was on high alert. It was a call to action. This passage, if you read it, if you were hearing this passage in Revelation for the first time, and you were the church in Pergamum, it would wake you up. It would wake you up, and it should. And if you're a Christian and you're familiar with Scripture, don't read it that way. Read it to say, okay, how would they have read it and heard it in that very first time when it says, to the church in Pergamum, right? And look how Jesus describes himself. He describes himself in a very frightening way almost, right? He says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. That weapon would have alerted them. It would have cleared the fog out. And hang, hang on. Okay, Jesus is speaking to our church and he's got a sword. That, that, that was meant to wake the church up to see that, that Jesus has authority. He's got authority to judge. He, he is the one who comes with a sword. And he uses a word that's a little different for most of the times in the New Testament. He uses the word for sword. They would use the word for a sword that was a Roman short sword called the Machaira. And that was typical all through the New Testament, except in Revelation. Sometimes it's used there, but most of the time in Revelation, he changes words to a sword that was used in actually this area of Asia, well, which is today Turkey. And, it, and it's called Romphia. It's a, it's a long sword. It's, it's several feet long. It was typically you carried it on your shoulder. You hold it with two hands. And the, the noticeable thing about this is that this sword was used to actually fight against the Roman army, and it was feared. And so it had a reputation in this area of these churches here. And so Jesus uses a very graphic, a very graphic term that they would get immediately. And he associates himself and, and this sword that comes out of his mouth with this very light, very powerful, this fearsome sword, this weapon was the only, one of the only weapons that the Roman army changed their armor because of. And this, is a, this is a very potent weapon. So Jesus says, hey, the words of him who has the sharp, and it's a two-edged sword, not just the normal one they would carry, this sharp stabbing, cutting sword, but this was a sword that was two-edged. It cut both ways. And I think if you were in that church, it would, you would kind of wake up. You would be like, hey, hang on, I'm listening now. Jesus is speaking to my church, and he says he's got a sword. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? 
The image carries this idea of the sharp, penetrating, swift, and deadly justice. And it was meant to. It was meant to, to carry this message as Jesus is the one who carries the sword of justice. The Roman Empire, uh, they were the sword, known as the sword. Or, and, and in Romans, actually, Paul wrote that, you know, that they bear the sword for our good. God's ordained it. They bear the sword for our good. But now Jesus is saying, no, I bear the ultimate sword. I bear the sword that's that's above every other sword. I bear a sword, and I bear a sword from my mouth. Now, he's not physically, we're not meant to physically picture that. In, 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 verse, in chapter 1, we see that, and again at the end here, we see that the sword proceeds from his mouth. That's not literal here. That's a figurative statement. That it's, it's meant to indicate that Jesus speaks words of justice, words of judgment, words of power, greater than the Romans. Words that penetrate, words that cut deep. Words that pierce to the vision of soul and spirit. Think about what a, a sword does. It, it cuts. And so God's word, it cuts out sin. It, it cuts out the cancers of our sin where necessary. It removes the, the disease of error, and it does that to give hope. And at the same time, it's also a sort of justice for those who don't believe in his word. And so the church there not only is woken up and saying, wait a minute, Jesus is carrying a sort of justice, that's good news, it's an also reminder that they need to be aware that Jesus is a holy God, that he is holy, he's righteous, he's pure, he's not okay with playing around with sin. But it's also assurance that his power is greater than the Roman Empire that the church in Pergamum is surrounded by. It's also so they can know that ultimately, no matter if they are killed with a physical sword that Jesus ultimately carries the sword and he will vindicate so he speaks to his church and he speaks to his church words that are powerful and words of judgment but if you notice Jesus speaks four kinds of words here in this passage we will see that Jesus speaks a word of commendation to the church he he announces who he is he wakes them up he speaks a word of commendation and then he speaks a word of correction and then he's, he speaks a call to repentance. And then finally, we'll, we'll see that, that he speaks comforting words, or he speaks words of covenant and promise. Jesus speaks his word, and he speaks his word powerfully, and his word is meant to have powerful power, and it's meant to wake us up and to see that he is the one who has all authority. The words of Jesus, they cut to the heart of the issue to change our heart on issue. They, they cut to the heart of the matter to change our heart on what matters. Jesus' words cut to the heart of the matter to change our heart on what matters. And I pray that's a effect for all of us today that, that we hear Jesus' words, that they're, they're cutting, his words are a sword, but they're meant to cut to the heart so that it changes our heart. These aren't words of, that lack care, but they are words that pierce. And he tells his church four different things, commends them, he corrects them, he calls the church to repent, and he covenants with his church. And on either side of that commendation and correction is really this, this imagery of a sword. We'll see the first thing that he does is he begins to commend the church. Now, if you know you're going to get corrected, um, sometimes you can have a temptation to dismiss encouragement or accommodation. If you know that correction is coming, and you think, okay, well, I'm just going to dismiss it. So don't, don't do that here today. If you were the church then, you would have needed these words of commendation and they would have been meaningful. Jesus wasn't just telling that to kind of set them up and to be nice to them. He was genuinely commending them. He was pointing out what was good and pointing out what needed some correction for their good. 
You know, before the Vietnam War, civilians really didn't understand what it meant to be in war. They had a hard time wrapping their heads around what other people experienced in war, but through broadcast of people like in the old days, Walter Cronkite, even before my time, I know it's hard to believe, but he brought the Vietnam War into people's living rooms, and there's nothing like a first-hand account of somebody who knows what you're going through that helps you to identify, no, you're not alone. There's a guy named Tim O'Brien. He served in the Vietnam War. He was a Marine in Alpha Company, and he knew firsthand what it meant to go through war, and he spent many years in Vietnam. He came back. He was fighting as a foreign soldier. He came back, and he wrote a book called The Things They Carried. It was published about 30 years ago, and it's, it's clear he knows what it's like to be in their war. And he, he, he wrote kind of the soldiers that he met there and their experience. And, and here's what he describes. I don't have it for you over here, but just listen here. It says, here's what he describes. It says, for the most part... They carried themselves with poise, a kind of dignity. Now and then, however, there were times of panic when they squealed or wanted to squeal but couldn't, when they twitched and made moaning sounds and covered their heads and said, Dear Jesus, and flopped around on the earth and fired the weapons blindly and cringed and sobbed and begged for the noise to stop and went wild and made stupid promises to themselves and to God and their mothers and their fathers, hoping not to die. When veterans of Vietnam read those words and have read the rest of his book, they, they were comforted because they got, they thought, he, he knows. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be in war. I'm not the only one that felt those, that myriad of emotions and was confused with this war going on around us and felt all alone, but now I don't feel like I'm all alone because somebody else knows. You know, most people here have not been through the horrors of war, although some who have been I hear that it helps to understand that you're not alone. It's a great comfort. But many of us have been through some kind of difficulty. Anybody here ever been through a difficult circumstance at all? Anybody? Difficult circumstance you don't understand? You can raise your hand. Come on. This is audience participation time. Anybody here? Anyone? Ever been through difficult circumstances you don't understand? You Keep your hands up. Just keep them up. I want people to look. Now look around for a second and see you're not alone. You're not alone. Here's the other thing you need to know is that more importantly... No matter what somebody else around you experiences, Jesus knows. That's, that's what we see. It's one of the first things that we see when he speaks words of commendation. Jesus knows. You ever, you ever had times of panic, lament, fear where you just hoped you could make it? You just thought, I, I don't know if I can do it or not. Have you ever felt like nobody understands your situation or where you are? You, you ever felt that, you know, I, just, I hope I can make it. Um, nobody knows where I'm at. Nobody knows what I'm living with. Nobody knows what I'm dealing with. And you ever been tempted to think, no one really gets it. Nobody really understands what it's like to walk in your shoes. Nobody sees, nobody knows where I live, what it's really like. If you felt like that, if you've ever been tempted to feel like that, you need to hear Jesus saying, I know. Now, he says this consistently through all the messages to the churches. There's seven different messages to the churches and in each of these messages, he says, I know. But there's different aspects that Jesus says he knows. He says in Revelation 2.2, I know your works and your toil, your patient endurance. He knows how hard you work. He knows how hard it is to endure. To the church in Smyrna, he wrote, I know your tribulation, your poverty. I know what you have to deal with, how hard things are, your trials, your temptations. I know you struggle with poverty. And then to this church, he doesn't say, I know your works, I know your temptations, I know you have a hard time. Although those are all included because these are all applying to what the Spirit says to the churches. But he says, I know where you dwell. I know where you live. I know how hard it is. 
I know how bad things are around you. I know what your life is like. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, we have hard times. But I don't know how many of us would ultimately say that we live where Satan's throne is. That is a pretty dramatic statement. Jesus, I know where you live. I know how bad it is. It's so bad that it's like where Satan has set up his throne and he is ruling and reigning. It's so bad that Satan looks like he has all authority there. Hey, but remember, I'm the one with the sword that comes out of my mouth. I have all authority. But I know where you live. I know that you live amongst these, this area. I'm not clueless. He's the, he, he knows, and he's the judge who knows. The city of Pergamum, it was especially vile. It was especially evil. It was really the, the epicenter, really, of the religious practice of Asia. Every, city, every one of these cities had some degree of, of worship. We saw that in Ephesus, they, 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 they worshiped Diana or the equivalent of Diana. They, in every city, they worshiped different gods. Now, But in this city, they had a temple to four different gods, and then they had several temples to the emperor. It was the height of religiosity, of the height of satanic worship, of, of worship of, of Zeus and other deities in this city. And then and, and went along with all those different temples that they had in town was a lot of worship of all those gods. And what they did was they would sacrifice to those gods and have big feasts in the temple. And then they would invite people to come and do business and, and they would sacrifice first and then they would eat this meat in the temple and celebrate that false god or gods. And then as well, another thing that they would do in these temples is they would pro- practice temple prostitution and immorality. And so Jesus says, I, I know where you live. I know how terrible it is around you. The world around you is full of debauchery. The world around you is full of sexual immorality. But I'm not distant. I've not abandoned you. I've not left you alone. I know. I know you're hated. I know that some of you have been put to death already. And he talks about Antipas. And he's been put to death. Jesus says, I know. And what's interesting is that he doesn't in that moment say, so you should move. He says, I know. I'm with you. I know. Remember, I'm the one with the sword. And I know. I'm going to judge them. But remember, be holy. I'm going to you need to know that I know. I know your trials, your temptations. I know your situation. I know where you live. I'm not uncaring. I know that you're in the midst of these things. And then he commends this church. He says, yet you hold fast my name. You hold on to You hang on to the name of Jesus. You hang on to my name, and you display my name in how you live and, and, and what you do. And I, I'm proud of you. Thank you. you commend, I'm going to commend you. You hold fast my name. You don't deny your faith, even though... You're faced with your friend, somebody else in church named Antipas, who was a faithful witness, the same word for martyr there. Faithful witness. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. And you, church, to be already be commended, you've hung on to your faith in the midst of utmost trials. And when I read something like that, I'm really provoked. I think, you know, how am I tempted to, to not be proud of the name of Jesus, to not champion the name of Jesus. How am I tempted to deny Jesus' name? And I don't face this temptation of having somebody in our church killed for their faith. Can you imagine what that would be like as a congregation? And he says, yeah, I know Joe in your church. You know Antipas in your church. He was, he was killed. And yet you held fast. And when he says you held fast to my name, you might be wondering, what does it mean to hold fast to somebody's name? The, the new... American Standard has a New Testament Greek lexicon that says the name is used for everything. 
So when you speak of Jesus' name and holding fast to his name, it says, the name is used for everything which the name covers. Everything the thought or feeling of which is aroused in the mind by mentioning, by hearing, by remembering the name for one's rank, authority, interest, pleasure, command, excellencies, deeds. I know that you've held fast my name. I know that you held fast everything about me, that you've held on to my authority. You've held on to who I am. You've held on to knowing that you are a Christian means that you follow me and that you're going to follow me, take up your cross and follow me too, and you've held on to that. And so he commends the church. They weren't ashamed to call Jesus their Lord. They weren't ashamed to follow him and knowing that they might die. They weren't ashamed by how they lived in their public testimony. When confronted, they didn't deny Jesus. When confronted, what do we do? So often we were confronted with just rejection or people not liking us, thinking we're weird. And yet those times when you hold on to the name of Jesus and say, no, I'm going to push on him. I'm going to, in him, I'm going to conquer. So in him, I'm going to trust that he's got me even though I might die. He commends you for that. He says, I know, I know your name. I know you've not denied me. I know you're in the midst of the throne of Satan. I know you've not been silent. I know you've held fast to my name in your school, in your work, in public, in your neighborhoods. Church, when you bear the name of Jesus boldly, hold fast to his name and your words, your deeds, Jesus knows and he commends you. He sees that. Ultimately, that's our commendation. That's the commendation that matters is do we hold fast his name? When we hold fast his name, he commends you for that. He is well pleased when you represent him, when you hold fast to his name. But Jesus, he wakes up his church to commend them, and he wakes up his church with this vivid imagery to also correct them. Jesus corrects his church. It's the second word that we see is a word of commendation. We see a word of correction. Jesus corrects his church. Now sometimes when I'm, like I said, when I'm, I, I, I'm, I hear correction, the only thing I remember is that correction. I don't remember the encouragement, but we, we must not do that. Jesus encouraged us in his legitimate encouragement. It doesn't do away with his encouragement because he is proud of where his grace is at work in our lives and we are following him by grace. He commends us for those things. It doesn't denigrate that, doesn't lessen that by any means. Where God's at work, we need to celebrate those things. But then we also need to receive his correction where appropriate because his correction actually brings life. His correction brings hope. His correction is, brings confidence knowing that because we've been saved by God's grace, we can be confident that we're no longer condemned. And so now he's making us more like him. That's what the promise is in Scripture. He, he promises that this whole, scripture life, this whole, whole Christian life, it's all about conforming us, making us into his image. And who doesn't want to be like Jesus, right? And so you receive these words of correction, but receive them as hope-giving, life-giving words that are meant to, to pull us out of living like the world and say, okay, great, now I want you to learn to live like me because I've, been, I've saved you by my grace, because you bear my name, because I, you have my grace. Now I want you to realize there's some things you need to work on. Now, how many of you guys have anything to work on? Can you relate to that at least, right? Now, in, in Jesus' correction, his word is like a sharp two-edged sword. It pierces. But it's not piercing us so that we die. It's to cut the sin out so that we can live, so we can have hope, so that we can be different. So he says, there's some, not everybody, but there's some in your church that you're allowing 
to participate in sexual immorality and you're allowing to participate in idolatry and you're just turning a blind eye to it. You're doing nothing about it. And that's not okay. But you know what? I can understand the church because they might have thought, hey, you know what? The most important thing is we're all Christians right now, so we're not going to major on some of these other things that, you know, those Christians, they really shouldn't be looking at pornography. They shouldn't be engaging in sexual immorality. They shouldn't be doing those things. We're just going to, we're, okay, that's not important right now. And just kind of ignore it because they think, well, we just have to survive. Well, Jesus is saying, you know, it's good that you're faithful in my name, but don't, don't ignore that I called you to be holy and that I saved you by grace so that you can be holy by my grace. I saved you by grace so that you can actually be different. He says, but you're ignoring these things. He says, I have some things against you. Now, when you hear Jesus say to the church, I have some things against you, you listen. And so he says, they hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block for the sons of Israel. And so what he's talking about is he's, that's referring back to Numbers, back in Numbers 25. And uh, Balak, he was the king of the Moabites, and he had asked Balaam, he had hired him to speak out against, to curse the Israelites, but God said, what are you doing? Who's that with you? Um, and Balaam said, all right, I'm not going to do that. And so three different times, Balaam doesn't curse, and God had to stop him by sending an angel with a sword. And he sent this angel with his sword to threaten Balaam, so Balaam did not curse the Israelites. So what Balaam did, though, instead was he compromised. And he, was, he said, you know what? And we find out later in Numbers 29, we find out later that what he did was he made a recommendation. Hey, I can't curse the children of Israel, because God told me not to. But what I can do is I can recommend to you a way that is going to be their downfall. And the downfall of God's people, then, he said, I know that, that God takes sexual purity really seriously, that he takes the purity of his people seriously. So I know what will, will make the downfall of the Israelites. I can't curse them, but what I can do is I can, under, I can encourage you and give you advice about how to undermine them. And so Balaam told Balak, the king of the Moabites, he said, you know what you can do is you can send a bunch of your temple prostitutes down to be with the men there, and then encourage them to come back and make sacrifices with them at their temple. And when they do that, God's going to punish the Israelites. And so that's what Balak did. He, he sent the women there, and they enticed by, through sexual immorality and through idolatry. And, and God did bring judgment, but you know what? He also brought judgment later, it says, through Israel with the sword on Balaam. So Balaam experienced God's justice by the sword. And he says, you know, don't be like that in the Nicolaitans, those people who say it's okay to intermingle with the world, to participate in the ways of the world, and be all right with that, and be comfortable with that, and be comfortable with that going on in your midst as a church. Don't do that. It's not okay. I'm not okay with it. Even if you're not, you're not helping your brothers and sisters. You need to help pull them out and care for them enough and love them enough to challenge them, to confront them. And you think, wait a minute, I don't, I don't like confrontation. That's not my job. Isn't that the job of the pastor or my care pleader? And then you read the words of Jesus in, in Matthew and you realize, oh no, when you see your brother sinning, go to him between you and him alone. Don't talk about him to other people or your sister to other people. Go between, to him between you and him alone. You don't need to come to me or Aaron or the small group leader. Go to him between you and him alone. And, and if they respond, you've won your brother. And so if we ignore that, actually we're, we're ignoring part of what the body of Christ is called to. One of the significant ways we care for each other in a loving, kind way. Because we love somebody. You know, if, if you have a child, you would be out of your mind if you knew they were headed to danger and you didn't stop them. If you have a, a physical brother or a physical sister or a sibling or a parent, somebody you love really well, and, and you see that they are about to drive off a cliff and you didn't stand in front of them, wave wildly, say, stop! 
I think people would wonder if you really cared, if you really loved them, if you really were trying to honor God, or if you just kind of ignored it because it was difficult. And so Jesus says, no, you can't do that. There are some amongst you that are participating in sexual morality and idolatry, and you need to correct that. You need to address that. Now, for those in the church who are participating in that, I think they heard those words and, and they woke up because Jesus says um, to the church, people who aren't participating in those things, he says, I'm going to come to you and I'm, I'm going to judge you for not doing that, for not taking care of those things, for you not bringing your brother's keeper in a good way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you. Now, we don't see what, the, what he's going to do, but, he, but the implication is there. He's going to hold us accountable. But then he says to those who are practicing the works of the Nicolaitans, who are doing those types of things, sexual morality and who are practicing idolatry, and by that revealing that they aren't truly believers, he says, I'm going to bring a sword. I'm going to wage war against them. Now, when you hear Jesus, the one who says, I come with a sword, say, I'm going to wage war against them, that should make everybody wake up. I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to wage war against them. And so if we have them in our midst, and we don't love them enough to say, hang on, you need to know something, brother or sister. You need to know that the path you're on is dangerous and I'm concerned for you. I love you. I care about you. I don't want you to experience the war of Jesus. I love you too much. I care for you too much. I care about our witness to the world too much. And so somehow they were allowing these practices amongst their members, even though in the Jerusalem Council in Acts that came from another region of Asia, but Surely it would have been spread, the, the word of it would have been spread to these churches in Asia. And in Jerusalem Council, they said, hey, we're not going to lay a lot of burdens on you. Only don't participate in meat sacrifice to idols in these pagan feasts and act like, hey, you can be part of the world because you want to hide your Christianity. Don't do that. Don't go along with what the world's idolatry and what the world does just because they do it and you, you want to fit in. Don't do that. Even if you say, I don't believe it, but you go along with it. You're defiling yourself, you're opening up yourself to the devil, and you're also giving a bad witness to those people you're participating with. But then he says, and then don't, not only do that, Jerusalem Council, don't participate in sexual immorality. Now, in this case, it's probably to do with temple prostitution, but it's a, it's a broad word that, that encompasses a wide range of things. And you know what? When, when they've done surveys, they, they've seen that in the church, the levels of sexual immorality are not terribly different than the culture around that should be sad. We should think, wait a minute, that's not right, that's not good. Let's, let's do something about that. And if that's in your own life, hear the words of Jesus and don't, don't play around like that. Don't play around with pornography. Don't play around with promiscuity. Don't play around with fornication and adultery. Don't, don't play around with those things. Jesus is very serious. He has a sword. And if you have a brother or sister, love them enough to care for them enough. If you see clear areas of idolatry, clear areas of immorality, help them, love them. Now do it between you and them alone, okay? Love them enough to respond to Jesus. Why? Because our witness of him matters. These are issues of life and death. How we live surrounded by where Satan dwells is critical, it's important. It communicates something. And then he calls the church, the third thing we see is that he says it's not okay if you accept that in your body and you turn a blind eye to it. <laughs> Sam Storms, I like how he says, it's almost as if they said, I'll personally never back down, even if it means my death. On the other hand, perhaps we need to be less rigid and a bit more tolerant when it comes to those who draw different conclusions about the practical implications of the saving grace of our Lord. you get that? I'll read that again, because this could be us today sometimes. 
It's almost as if they said, I will personally never back down, even if it means my death. And maybe that's you. That's good. On the other hand, perhaps we need to be less rigid, a bit more tolerant when it comes to those who draw different conclusions about the practical implications of the saving grace of our Lord. I think to some degree, mainstream Christianity has done that in many areas. Become tolerant of promiscuity, tolerant of different ways of defining what it means to be a man, defining what it means to be a woman, defining what is pleasing to God in our behavior sexually. And, and Jesus says, no. Don't distort grace. Don't allow people to excuse loose and licentious behavior. And don't do it yourself. And so he calls the church to repent. Jesus calls his church to repent. It's the third thing we see. He calls his church to repent. He commends his church, corrects his church. He calls his church to repent. How is he called to repent? By confessing the error of their ways, by, right, by exercising church discipline is the inference there, by, by not allowing people to engage in these idolatrous practices, by, by saying, hey, brother, when you went to the temple, I know you said you didn't really mean it, you just go along with the other people in your business meeting, and you do what they do, and you look at what they look at because you want to fit in and you want to close the deal. He says, that's not okay. Repent and help them repent. That brings something up too, is that Our sanctification process, it is not an alone thing. It impacts other people in the church. And how we help people with sanctification process is, it's it's not a private matter. And when I say that, I don't mean that it's not between you and him alone. It's it's that it's not just a personal thing. It's, oh, they're dealing with something, so I'm just going to let them alone. That's just between them and, no, that actually affects the whole body. It affects the whole body. If you have... These areas you're, you're sitting in, it affects the rest of the body. If you see these areas happening and you don't care for your brother and sister, it affects the rest of the body. Repent. He says, if not, I'll come in soon and I'm going to wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. It's not loving to let somebody else engage with clear and overt sinful practice. Now, I'm not talking about being sin inspectors. That's not what Jesus is talking about either. But he's saying that don't, don't be like the culture around you who goes after these idols and there's a myriad of idols for us today. And often idols lead to immorality as well, especially in the area of sexual immorality. We want an idol fulfillment. We want gratification, satisfaction. We want sense of worth. Those things can actually lead to us pursuing promiscuity, sexual immorality, fornication, those kind of things. And he says, no, repent. And if you have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, as to all of us. Not only does he speak words of accommodation and correction and he calls to repentance, but we also see something else that's, that's really important that we need to hang on to. And he leaves us with this. He speaks his words of covenant promise to the church. Jesus covenants with his church. He, he gives promises to his church that are covenantal in nature. He gives promises to his church that are dear. He, he doesn't do these things because he wants to punish his church. He does these things because he wants to bless his church. Just like when Hopefully, most of the time at least, when I am disciplining my kids, it's because I love them and I want them to experience all the blessings of God and all the goodness, and I don't want them to experience God resisting them. I want them to experience good. I want my children to know Jesus and the blessings and promises of God for themselves. So when Jesus speaks to this church, he wants the church to know and experience all the blessings he has for his people. God says, whom I love, I reprove. Listen, if, if you are experiencing conviction, if you've been experiencing conviction in any of these messages on, um, from the book of Revelation to any of the churches, and by the way, I've, I've experienced conviction every single one of them. 
There's, there's at least some way this applies to me in every message to the church. You don't just think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to me. Every message to the church is to all the churches. And here's the good news. Jesus gives promises as we hear and keep his words, respond to them, we apply them. He wants his church to know the blessings. And he gives this kind of covenantal language. If you overcome by, now we, we know later, and we, we talked about last week, we overcome by faith in him, by faith in his blood. So what do we do? We, we apply the gospel again. We apply faith. The fact that his blood has covered all of our sins, so we don't need to feel condemnation and guilt in that sense. We can say, look, we are guilty before God, but thank you that we're no longer guilty because we have the blood of Jesus, because he's died for us. He's paid the price that we could not pay, so there's no condemnation. And as we put our faith in that, as we respond to him, as we repent, here's the wonderful promise. Look down your Bibles. I'll give some of the hidden manna. I'll give some of the hidden manna. What is manna? Maybe, maybe you're not familiar with the Old Testament, but in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, and by the way, sometimes we're in the wilderness, but when the Old Testament, when they were in the wilderness, when they didn't have anything to eat, when they did not know, did not know where they were going to have any food from that would sustain them, provide for them, God provided manna for them every day. They didn't see where it came from. They don't know how it got there, but God provided just enough every day to sustain them. He says, if you overcome, I'm going to give you my hidden manna. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to sustain you. And you might not understand it. And it might be day by day, moment by moment. But I'm going to give you my manna. I'm going to care for you in the wilderness. And, and then also, later or earlier we saw in John that when the people were asking Jesus, because Jesus was talking to them about him being the manna of life, the bread of life, and they said, we don't get it. Look in John 6, 27. John 6, 27. I think we have this word in the overheads. He says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. It's a good promise. For on him, the Father, God has set his zeal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So how do we get this manna? How do we get these works? What do we, what do, we do? What's the work that we do? And listen to what he says in verse 29. Here's, here's the work, the overcoming, the working for manna. Here's what he says. This is the work of God that you believe in him who sent you. You believe in him who he has sent. That's, that's the work. Your work is to say, God, I believe in you. I put my trust in you again. He's not looking for us to do works to, to earn favor before him. He's looking for our works or to put our faith in his works. And so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? How do we know? And he had just, by the way, fed 5,000 here. He says, what work do you perform? And they said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. But Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this kind of bread. Always give us your manna. And he said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. You hungry? You thirsty? Jesus says he'll give you manna as you overcome by faith, as you put your faith in him. He promises to give us a kind of manna that we don't know where it comes from. We'll never hunger. We'll never thirst. 
We're going to live forever. We'll be sustained by His grace. So we trust in His sacrifice for us on the cross. We trust in His body broken for us, His blood spilled for us. He will live, we will live forever, even if we're martyred. We can trust in Jesus, this, this heavenly feast that He provides. And it is interesting that in the end of Revelation, He talks about inviting everybody to a heavenly feast. We'll receive manna himself. We'll, we'll feast on him, the bread of life. Now notice the other covenant promise Jesus makes to church. Look, look down your Bibles. Look down your Bibles in Revelation. It's the other covenant promise he makes in verse 17. Not just he will give us some of the hidden manna. That is a wonderful promise. He feeds us. He provides for us. He cares for us. We trust in him. But he says something else that's a little different for us. We don't quite understand it right away. You're like, what in the world is this language? He says, I'll give him a white stone. And you're like, what? What's a white stone all about, Jesus. He says, I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And, and so now we are 2,000 years later, we don't deal on stones a lot. But this meant something to those readers, and it probably meant a few different things. It wasn't just one thing, but it probably meant a few different things. I mean, that day, people would vote with different colored stones. If, if a jury was voting on whether somebody was guilty or not, they would vote white stones for innocent and a black stone for guilt. And so if somebody got all white stones, they would receive acquittal. They'd be acquitted. And so there's probably something in that in the meaning here because they would have had that in their minds in that day and age. They would have thought, oh, okay, we'll get a white stone here. So this is signifying that Jesus gives us this stone of acquittal. And in another sense, this, these stones would be used to, as a token of admission as well at a special feast. So sometimes people would be given these white stones, these special stones, and saying, here, by the way, I'm inviting you to a special feast, and I'm putting your name on it. And so when you're at the door, you can present this thing to the person who's going to let you into the feast, and you can show them, no, I'm invited, and I've got my name on it. I'm a welcome guest. And so I think there's a sense of that, because Jesus is talking about manna, feasting on him, and he says, I'm giving you a stone, so now you have entry to the great heavenly feast. You can be sure you have eternal life. You have eternal entry to this wonderful heavenly feast. And then there was another implication, too, in, this, in the area around there. They, when people would join one of those temple cults, they would, they would get this stone with a secret name written on it. And it was a sign that they belonged, that they were a member and so I think there's probably an inference there as well. So it's not just one thing, but I think Jesus is communicating something here, that, that he is the one who promises acquittal. He's the one who guarantees our entry into the heavenly feast, and he's the one who's given us a new name, a new identity. That's what he promises to all who trust in him to overcome. You see, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I want the new to come, right? Do you want the new to come? Anybody here want the new to come? Anybody here want to experience that kind of new life? And he says, you can trust in me. I'm giving you this manna of life. I'm giving you myself, the manna of life, and I'm giving you guaranteed entry into the feast. I'm giving you acquittal, and I'm giving you a new name. And it's really a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 62 too, and I, I think we have that for you as well. In Isaiah 62 too, he says, the nations, and, and, and Revelation is so interesting how it, it points back to the Old Testament so many times. It's the fulfillment, and, and Jesus shows us how he is the ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament. So in, in Isaiah 62, two, he says, The nations shall see your righteousness, and the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord gives. 
So what do we see now? We see Jesus giving us a new name. What does that mean? He, he defines you. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by whatever name you have. Now, now for us, names, again, don't, don't mean much. I'm, my name is Matthew Robert Rawlings. I think that's my name. But, but that doesn't mean that's my character. That's exactly who I am. In that day, though, names meant they, they personified a person. They, they, they embodied who a person was in their character, their nature. And Jesus says here, I give you a new name, a new character, a new identity. Isn't that a good promise? Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful promise? We can hang on to that, that white stone with our name on it. He gives us a new name, the special. We reflect the new character, the new nature he's given to us, the the new identity, all of the newness of the gifts, the attributes he's given to each and every one of us as his children, he gives us a stone with our, our new name on it. And there's something else interesting there. He says, nobody else knows that. And why do you say that? I think it's because there's this, there's this intimate relational aspect that, that we have this special privilege that God gives us an endearing special name is between him and, him and us alone. Like you have a pet name for your spouse. You have a special name that you might call your spouse that people might not know. And we have that same kind of implication here. Jesus is saying, God is saying, I'm giving you a special name that's dear. It's intimate. It's personal. I'm giving you a new name. No one else knows that name. You know why? Because this is, I want you to know my blessing specifically and personally. Something sweet about that picture. You have a new identity. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your shame. Church, you're not defined by your failures. You're not defined by your disappointments. You're not defined by your regrets. You've got a new identity. A new name that's greater, represents the new person that God sees you as, that you really are. That's what he promises to all who have faith in him. That, that's meant to bring you hope. It's meant to bring you joy and freedom. That no one can take that away. It's meant to encourage you to respond. Say, I've got hope. Thank you that I overcome by faith in him. And as I respond to him, whatever he's bringing up is because he's given me his manna and he wants to give me his name. Not because he's angry with me, but because he wants me to love him. Because he loves me. I'm going to close with a scripture in Colossians 3, 2 through 4. He says, Paul says, the Holy Spirit says through Paul, set your minds on the things that are above. How do we respond? Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You're not that person you used to be anymore. You're not defined that way. Don't live like that anymore. Don't live in sexual immorality. Don't, don't live in idolatry. You have died. And now your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Amen. Well, band, why don't you go ahead and come up and we'll close with a song.